want to welcome everybody here to this dispatch with the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. We just wrapped up a day-long conference burying the Monroe Doctrine, an excellent activity with lots of inspiring panels and speeches from all of the attendees and a really good energy from everybody who attended. I'm really excited. I think there's the building of, of strengthening our international bonds and links in the anti-imperialist struggle. But, you know, this topic, burying the Monroe Doctrine, what does that mean in concrete terms? What comes out of this conference? And what does it mean specifically for Venezuela? Uh, hello, my name is Hector Figarella, uh, an organizer with, out of Western Massachusetts with the Anti-Imperialist Action Committee. Uh, thinking about the Monroe Doctrine, uh, um, Bolivar was quoted today a couple of times uh, in regards to that. And I think and Chavez talked about it. And it just, to me, it means that finally... We, we could see a point in history where Latin America can finally be allowed to, to shoot, choose its, its destiny in self-determination. Venezuela is doing that. Cuba has do, been doing that. And other countries are trying to you know, pave their own way and, and just be respected. So I think, I think we're moving closer to that. It's really exciting. Today's, uh, today's event shows that. There's a lot of solidarity internationally. With, with the people of Latin America, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua. So I, th I think, I think we're, we're, getting, we're getting closer. And I think when I think about it, I think as, as we see Latin America getting, as Latin America becomes more unified, that's, I think that's, that's when we'll see finally uh, an end to the moral doctrine. When, when Latin America is f fully unified, um, I think they will, it will be... It will be an opportunity. It will be the time for, 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 for Latin America to really stand up to the United States empire. Hamitakiapi, my name is Nick Estes. I am an assistant professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota, and I'm an organizer with the Red Nation. Every people has a right to develop according to their own values and standards. Um, and what we've seen with European colonialism of the Western Hemisphere is the ossification and the maldevelopment and underdevelopment of not just uh, the entire hemisphere, but specifically Latin America. Um, and so when I think about that question of what does it mean to bury the Monroe Doctrine, thinkers such as uh, Emilcar Cabral, who called for the return to the source, come to mind. He meant return to the source, not a return to the past or like a, a kind of idealized sort of utopian society that one may find in indigenous communities or imagine to be indigenous communities that never really existed. But the idea that every human group in the world universally develops according to their own needs and principles. And so when he's saying returning to the source, he means returning to that source of development, of correct development according to the values of society and the needs of society. And what we see Today in Latin America is the, the sort of delinking and the breaking of those chains that have ossified the development of Latin American peoples, not just nations, but the peoples that make up those nations. Uh, and, you know, you can look at indigenous people, you can look at Afro-descendant people, you can just look at everyday people and how they're trying to construct a society to, that returns to that source, that, that reflects and is an articulation of their values and their systems. Um, I think that's what it means to bury the Monroe Doctrine. It's not going to happen here in Washington, D.C. It's not going to happen here in the halls of Congress. It's going to happen on the streets, in the campo. It's going to happen in the fields. It's going to happen in the countryside. And we're already seeing that, that mobilization 
um, with you know the people power and the development of democracy from from below uh, with an articulation in the state. My name is Claudia de la Cruz, and I'm um, with the People's Forum in New York City. I think that you know burying the the Monroe Doctrine and what it means and what it's meant for the last 200 years for Venezuela um, means allowing the Bolivarian Revolution to breathe. And I think, you know, in its, in its process is already done so much. Um, it has had the capacity to be able to build integration in the region um, with many of the countries and has taught the different nation states that their, their development the development of each of these nation states is actually um, compromised, is threatened by their relationship with the United States because the, the relationship that the United States has developed has been one of dominance. And I think in that teaching, it has gained um, a level of strength and a level of respect from the region and the world. And so if we're thinking about, you know, what would the bearing of the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine mean to the Venezuelan people, for me, it would be that, you know, just as we in the United States as working class people have the book, the boot of capitalism on our neck in Venezuela, the Venezuelan people have the boot of imperialism on their neck. Um, they have been able to develop the different missions. They have been able to develop and deepen the work in the comunas. They have been able to create a democratic process that is participatory. Um, I have been to Venezuela several times and I can find and I could share that. The only other place that there are people as politically developed to be able to criticize and deepen their political process, the other, any other place in this continent is Cuba. <laughs> uh, very critical of, of their process, but also very loving of their process because they're unwilling to bend their knees to imperialism ever again. And so with that level of strength, I'm more than hopeful. Um, I'm convinced <laughs> that the Venezuelan people and the different nation states that decide to be part of burying the Monroe Doctrine in this continent will win. We will win. Hi, Jose. Thank you. This is Terry Matson. I'm the host of the podcast, What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean. So nice to be a guest on your show. For me, it's um, burying the Monroe Doctrine is a 200-plus year battle of philosophy of the Americas, one being um, of Simon Bolivar of, and his view of integration of the Americas uh, in contradiction to James Monroe's vision of the Americas being domination over the Americas. And these two men lived in each other's lifetime. And so one is, in, one is focused on integration and one is focused on domination. And I think what we are seeing today, specifically since the elections in Bolivia in October of 2020, all the way through the elections in Brazil through fall of 2022, is how peoples of the Americas, specifically Latin America and the Caribbean, have voted for national sovereignty, natural resource sovereignty, and uh, governments proposing economies beneficial to all, to the majority of their citizens. That has been the, uh, I don't know, how many countries are we talking about between presidential elections and legislative elections, maybe 12, 14. And uh, you can see that this integration of the Americas is being created in the South in Simon Bolivar's vision and is percolating up to the North. And so there is hope for us in the States too <laughs> that we will integrate and no longer dominate.
My name is Greg Wilpert. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of Venezuela Analysis and also with DSA and the website ZNet. Um, to me, one of the things we have to realize is that uh, the, um, the reason the Monroe Doctrine survived for so long is because the United States elite really uh, acted in collusion to a large extent with the elites of Latin America and was able to basically keep, as Claudia was saying, its boot on the necks of the people there um, for such a long time uh, because of that collusion. But the, I think the elites, to some extent, especially in Latin America, have gotten a bit weaker. And that's why you had this rise of the, uh, this first wave of the, what was called the Pink Tide, especially beginning with the election of Hugo Chavez in, in 1998. And um, I think that served as an example also for many people uh, to, to rise up. And of course, you had revolutions and revolutionary movements long before that, but they were always suppressed. And that was like one of the, aside from the Cuban one and the, and the Nicaraguan, I guess, um, and that was one of the more successful ones in recent times that served then as an example, especially via democratic means, via the ba ballot box, that is, to, uh, to overthrow or to, to uh, resist um, the, the local elites and therefore uh, set an, an example for going in a different direction. And, um, and, and the hope, of course, is that, that these movements um, of, uh, of, the, of the grassroots, of the working classes uh, of these countries are going to be able to work together, hopefully maybe with the people of the North, particularly in the United States and Canada, uh, to finally get eventually uh, defeat the Monroe Doctrine, so to speak, uh, of the North, because after all, um, we're as again as Claudia was saying, um, we're also um, uh, victims of this uh, system in the North. Um, but uh, but it really was going to require us to come together, and uh, and I think Latin America has definitely served as an example of that. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Selena Della Croce. I'm with Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, as well as the Anti-Imperialist Action Committee in Western Massachusetts. Um, in terms of what it means to bury the Monroe Doctrine, I think that also means burying an agenda um, that uses brute force, uses coercion, uses violence, terror, the biggest military in, uh, in the world, supremacy of the dollar, and all these other coercive measures that I could spend 30, 30 minutes just listing, um, that instead of you know, it would mean bearing that agenda um, and instead of spending most of our tax money on war to kill other people and kill and suppress and oppress other working people across the world, that we could fund things like healthcare and education and housing at home. I live in Massachusetts where there's a huge housing crisis and rents went up by like 30 percent in the last year. And so instead of sending half of our tax money to war, we could be providing not only for people in the United States, also giving people in places like Venezuela and Cuba that are, you know, fighting their own struggle and, and have a very clear political agenda to do the same in their countries. Um, I think we've heard the term Buddha, get the boot off their neck a few times for a reason. Um, but I think in terms of what that would mean for Venezuela, it would mean that rather than having 40,000 people dying in a single year as the Center for Economic and Policy Research showed a few years ago, and with 300,000 more who are at risk of dying because they can't access cancer, um, treatments and and we saw that personally. Hector and I were in Venezuela last year because there are no X, the X-ray machines are broken in the hospitals and all these things. That rather than having, you know, suffering all this suffering and death as a political choice, um, we could see what it would look like when when the comunas that are already building their agenda have 
the space to breathe and have the space to develop. They have like there's so much creative power, you know, in Venezuela and in in the Bolivarian Revolution. But it's there's the Monroe Doctrine and and you know all these manifestations of U.S. imperialism are making it very difficult for people, um, for people to to develop those projects as as you know as as best they they could they can. Um, and so I think um, that would not only mean all of those things for the U.S. population, for the Venezuelan population, but we saw how, you know, Venezuela before the sanctions decimated the economy and their ability to produce and export oil also gave oil to to Haiti, um, to Cuba. And, and you know, if if we really were to bury the Monroe Doctrine, it wouldn't just be the U.S., it wouldn't just be Venezuela, but it would, you know, Venezuela, Hector mentioned Bolivar, is committed to, you know, to a revol- an internationalist revolution and lifting up the, the global working class um, and the global working class struggle. So it would mean allowing that, you know, allowing that project to, to advance at a at a much faster rate, um, not for the U.S. population or the Venezuelan population, but really for the people um, across the world. And, you know, one of the ways that I think we've seen the very direct application of the Monroe Doctrine over recent years has been sanctions. It's been what we've talked a lot about here at this conference, talked about sanctions against Cuba, obviously also sanctions against Venezuela. But one of the questions that I heard come out of of the discussion here is that we've seen a change in administration. We've gone from Democrats to Republicans, back to Democrats, and it seems like the policies don't change. And so one of the questions that I heard was, how do we move forward to end sanctions given the conditions of the political situation in the United States right now? I think we're right now, we're at a pivotal moment uh, in regards to the sanctions policy. I think we're we're seeing that there has been a response from for the 40 plus countries that are under sanctions right now to be able to, they, they have to, to create a different way of surviving and building their economies and taking care of their own, their own citizens. Venezuela has had to do that in many, by many different ways. And thankfully there's been solidarity, you know, from China and Iran and, and uh, Nicaragua and Cuba. So I think that, yeah, I think, I think, we're seeing that sanctions as a, as a tool of war, because it is, it is war, it's a form of, of warfare. You are indiscriminately killing the population. You're causing extreme suffering. I, I personally lost so many members of my family. I, I lost my father because he, could, he just couldn't find anticoagulants for his, blood, for his heart condition. I lost an aunt to COVID because there were, there were no vaccines. They, the sanctions imposed by the U.S. cost... Um, you know, block the payment uh, you know, with COVAX and, and, and the list goes on. And uncle died because he couldn't find malaria medication. Um, my godmother died because, you know, they, they, it was hard to find oxygen for her, for her asthma. So she, she suffocated to death, you know? Uh, so this happened last year. So, the, you know, these countries have had to find a different way to survive. And I think we're, we're seeing a weakening of, of sanctions as a, as a tool of war. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a great thing. And, you know, Marco Rubio came out and said it like, hey, pretty soon sanctions are going to be useless. So, we, you know, we better rethink that strategy. So uh, I, think, I, think the, I think that's something that, that's, you know, the, 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 the world is, is trying to de-dollarize. De- so, um, so the world's, you know, as, as a resource currency, the, the dollar is, is, is becoming weaker. So. I think I think we're we're looking. I don't know. It's not happening fast enough, obviously, because people are people are dying, people are suffering as a consequence of the sanctions. So they're not, you know, it's, they're not going away fast enough. I guess is what I'm trying to say. But um, 
but there but there is momentum there's solidarity and, and there's people on the ground here at home and abroad working working to put an end to them uh, i would say that what backs up sanctions and especially the sanctions in venezuela isn't just you know it's not just a decree and then people stop shipping goods there those decrees and those sanctions are enforced by a global military superpower that has army bases and military bases in over 800 different locations and so if we want to it's not just attacking the sanctions regime you know the 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 dollar is the u.s dollar is upheld at the barrel of a gun and a battleship that's ready to be deployed you know within 72 hours or whatever the you know the state department says and when it makes threats to china when it makes threat to, threats to venezuela when it makes threats to cuba um and so we have to think about in the united states how the united states has accumulated the social wealth of the world but instead of even dispersing it amongst its own population it invests in jails for its own population it invests in policing for its own population we don't even get healthcare out of this out of this imperialist parasitic relationship you know and these value chains that exist what we get is bombs jails and cops right um and so for when we're talking about a sanctions regime and ending it in the united states we also have to talk about not just you know the redistribution of ill-gotten wealth from the global south but a sort of just and i, I think um terry said this uh the integration of uh, a just economy that is about reparations because we have to answer for all of hector's family we have to answer as as people in the united states we have to answer for that destruction that we that our government has wrought on other people of the world, but also fighting for the, you know, the social rights that we deserve in this, in this country, whether it's housing, you know, whether it's education, all those things are related. They invest money into this war machine to choke out alternatives, right? Instead of, and, and I think it was Claudia who said this earlier, we're not trying to provide charity to Venezuela. We're, we're providing solidarity and they're providing an inspiration for what can happen in this hemisphere. Well, one of the important things that came out of the sanctions panel, I think, was uh, particularly the, uh, the point that, uh, that the U.S. government is spreading a bald-faced lie when it says that the sanctions are only targeted against you know, people who are corrupt or something like that or violators of human rights, etc., which is just such a lie because it affects the general population, as we've heard. And so the challenge for us, I think, is really to, to expose that lie. And so it's really, to some extent, an organizing and media campaign that we need to fight and, and win. Uh, because I think the people of the United States would be on our side if they understood this, uh, if they see uh, what uh, U.S. government policies are actually doing. It's just because... They do not know, I think, that, uh, that these policies are being supported. Uh, and of course, it goes for so many other topics, uh, so many other issues, unfortunately. So it is, a, it is an uphill battle, no doubt. But uh, the, <laughs> the good thing is we have the truth on our side. And as Chavez said on our current Venezuela Analysis t-shirt, the truth is subversive. I just, um, just wanted to kind of piggyback on Greg's comments. because For me, what came out of that panel specifically and I think this is a, a, the root of our educational process with the U.S. citizens. Sanctions are warfare. They are a form of warfare, and it is a modern tool of the Monroe Doctrine. And the thing that is so insidious about sanctions, particularly for the U.S. citizen people, 
is that it's, the sanctions are a silent killer to those of us who live inside the borders of the United States. Where a lot of us, we will say, well, how bad can it be in Venezuela? We haven't, we don't have boots on the ground. We're not dropping bombs. How bad can it be? Well, it's because the sanctions are silent, out of sight, out of mind, which makes them more insidious and more dangerous and more lethal. I, I, I want to go back to the question that was raised, Jose Luis, in terms of, you know, there's no Trump now. Now it's Biden. Um, because I think it's important to understand that war is inherent to capitalism. Like, it's organic. It, has, it needs war in order to survive. And so, as it has been mentioned, sanctions are tools of war. Um, and there's a hybrid war going on, right? So it's, it's economic, it's political, it's, it's cultural, it's ideological, you know, um, and it's being waged in different spaces. And, and we need to be conscious of that. Um, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are capitalist and imperialist. And so they might disagree in very minute things that have to do with domestic policy. Um, you know, the Democratic Party might have some liberals left. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so they might have those levels of disagreements. But when, you know, they want to talk about a regime, quote unquote, in Venezuela and recognizing Juan Guaido, who nobody in Venezuela actually knows and cares about, um, it shows you, you know, just how unified they are in imperialist policies. I think it's important also to to understand how sick capitalism has made our society. Um, and a lot of that sickness comes from misinformation. Uh, we don't actually acknowledge how toxic and brutal our relationship to capitalism is and what it actually does to us in terms of there's a concept called desclasados, right? Like we don't have class consciousness. We don't understand ourselves as poor people, even though we're dirt poor. <laughs> um, and, and to be able to have an internationalist vision to be able to feel and connect ourselves to the working class in Venezuela and understand what the sanctions are doing there, we need to understand ourselves as poor people. We need to know that the South Bronx is the poorest, one of the poorest congressional districts in the United States, and we don't have access to health care. We don't have access to quality education. We live in a food desert. We need to know that when we're talking about the natives, the indigenous people who are the righteous, you know, holders like of this land have been displaced and have been placed into what I would say are, you know, open air prisons and have the highest rates of suicide. Like we need to know that. And we live in a society that engages us and, and kind of like entangles us in so many distractions including our own conditions. We're so distracted by just the mere need to live that we don't get the information about any other place. Um, what we do get is that, you know, Cuba is an authoritarian government, that Venezuela is authoritarian, that there are human rights violations. But who condemns the United States for its human rights violations, for its capacity to brutalize all of the world? You, you can't even say some of the world, all of the world. And so if we were to, like Greg said, if the people of the United States who are living in the, under these conditions of poverty, of, of lack of education, lack of access to health care, would be able to access the information, the history, you know, the people's history, the side of those who have been brutalized and victimized by the United States, we get it. 
we totally get it because we have ways of connecting with our people, with our class. And so when we're talking about sanctions, as Nick was sharing, is part of a larger project, is part of a larger agenda, and it cannot be detached from that. It is losing its weight because I think we have the hope of the global south rising and understanding that multipolarity is a path, that no longer can we have one country dictate for the rest of the world what their destiny will be. And so that is hopeful. And the people in the United States need to kind of get with the program and understand that we are part of that reality as well. Yeah, so I think on the question of how to move forward with ending the sanctions, um, given the political landscape in the U.S., I wanted to lift up something Claudia said in her closing speech um, today, which is that, you know, we have a duty, and I think Nick just said a minute ago too, but we have a duty as people living in the belly of the beast to fight back against these things. Um, and I think, you know, what Hector said is important too, that we're not going to, you know, like like our people in Venezuela and people in Cuba, people across the global South and across the Americas aren't going to sit around and wait for us to like get the sanctions lifted. They're shifting, you know, they are building like blocks. And we heard about that too. And building other regional currencies to try to get around the sanctions is oddly political clarity. Um, you know, we heard from Marco Rubio, as, as Hector said, but, um, you know, I think there is in terms of how to move forward with that situation in the United States, there is also a shifting political landscape um, that does provide a window for us to lift the sanctions. And, and, uh, you know, we've been working on a direct action campaign for the last few years, actually since 2019, to lift the um, get the sanctions lifted in Venezuela. But the, I, you know, we've seen, I guess, in the last few months, even how um, you're even getting people like Max Boot from the Council on Foreign Relations, which is like no no friend of ours, right? Politically, but he published a, an article in the Washington Post that said, um, you know, basically like, the Democrats lost Florida. So like, you can't use that as an excuse and actually sanctions are driving migration. So to be on the same, I mean, I would not say I agree with everything in the article, but to have like, you know, like significant overlap with someone like Max Boot shows us that there is a shifting scenario. Um, so I think the migration crisis is one thing that opens a window for, for people like Biden, who are not our, who are the, the people killing, you know, so many Venezuelans to, for it to be advantageous for them to lift the sanctions because Ultimately, that's kind of, you know, it is about self-interest. Um, and, um, you know, other other kind of parts of that scenario are also seeing how we have this rise of left governments in the Americas from Lula to, um, in Brazil to Petro in Colombia. And it's making like the U.S. is isolating itself. So we have, you know, between that and I, I won't go on and on and on. But um, I think, you know, another important piece is the oil crisis in the United States as a result of the war in Ukraine and Venezuela has the you know b biggest known oil reserves in the world. So there are all these things that open this window of what we've been saying and what we've known for years and years and years that there actually does seem to be a window of opportunity where it's not going to I don't know that it'll happen. I don't think it'll happen on its own. But, you know, there's a window of opportunity for those of us who are fighting this fight to really push. And I think I think we could win. Um, and that's kind of what one of the things we've been organizing around um, with, you know, with the Anti-Realist Action Committee. And I know that Venezuela Analysis put, um, published a couple of articles on McGovern's dance, which was referenced quite a bit today and also yesterday um, with Code Pink as part of, um, you know, this um, bearing the Monroe, uh, the Monroe Doctrine had an ad advocacy day yesterday. And so McGovern um, came out with a letter first in um, June of 2021. It's quite strongly um, worded and, and Mark Weisbrot references during his panel calling on the Biden administration to, quote, stop using the people of Venezuela as a bargaining chip, which is, you know, quite, you know, it's, it's not it's it's substantial language. Um, but I think it's important to uplift, too, that he only did that because we fought with him for two years to do that. And he, he he's actually said that. And so it's not that, like, you know, we have these benevolent people who are all of a sudden just going to realize that, like, Venezuelans are suffering or 
you know, but I think like that we have the people in this room and, and the people in this conference and, and, you know, that are part of our organizations who, who are fighting this fight, um, who, you know, do have this window of opportunity to do that. Um, and I think it's important to have the, like, have organizations with the political clarity that, that, you know, the people here have that it's not, you know, we're, it's not that the, anyone in the U S government is going to come and like fix this for us. But if we have political clarity, we have this analysis and we can, you know, actually use our position in the belly of the beast to lift the sanctions and, and allow Venezuelans to breathe. And, and also then Cubans and Haitians and people in Massachusetts where, where Chavez sent oil before the sanctions. Um, you know, I think there is a, we have to have that political clarity about why we're doing what we're doing, but I think there is a window for that that wasn't, um, wasn't there even a few months ago. And, um, you know, I think that work is being done and Code Pink, you know, made a lot of that happen yesterday as part of this weekend, but I think it's ongoing and I think we have reasons to be hopeful for, for, but we have to fight. For my last question, I want to pick up on something you said. It seems to me almost like these fissures that we saw, thanks to organizing, became cracks. And now, thanks to the organizing that's happening here in this conference and what could come afterwards, these cracks threaten to become breaks. And I feel like we can confidently say we're in the age of declining U.S. hegemony. And that really means a moment of opportunity. And so in your closing remarks, Claudia, you said you wanted to say thank you to the Bolivian Revolution, to the people of Venezuela for their solidarity, for their inspiration. So I wanted to close with that. Maybe I can get a comment from each one of you about why Venezuela, the Bolivarian Revolution, why the processes of transformation that are happening throughout the region serve as inspiration for yourselves and for your communities here in the United States. I mean, I think you can't speak about the Bolivarian Revolution without Bolivar, obviously, right? But you can't speak about the Bolivarian Revolution without Chavez. And Chavez had the capacity of clarity, commitment, and competence. <laughs> Um, and he had a very, uh, very honest way, very genuine way of connecting with the masses and letting them know exactly what was happening. And Frantz Fanon said it too, for as long as we have the will to explain to people the truth, they will understand the truth. Um, and I think, you know, when we're talking about Venezuela and what it means, at least for me, and I think for a lot of the folks who, were, who are part of the South Bronx, who are beneficiaries of the solidarity of, of Venezuela, not only through the oil pro program of Petro, Petro Bronx, but also through the Simón Bolívar Foundation, where you had young people who were able to develop cultural programs. Um, you had people who were elders and didn't know how to write and read in the wealthiest country in the world and were actually literate <laughs> thanks to that program. I mean... The, the, the levels of solidarity in terms of social investment from the Venezuelan revolution into the South Bronx has been much more than the U.S. government has actually ever offered us. And so when, you know, I think of the Bolivarian revolution, what I think of Chavez, I think of truth. And I think of the possibilities that come when we are able to tell the truth about who our enemy is and acknowledge ourselves, our own truth, in terms of resistance and our ability to build revolution. For me, the biggest inspiration is the Venezuelan people themselves. I, I mean, and I, I always get kind of teary-eyed when I say that, but these people are still a nation of people, despite years and years of warfare against them from the North. 
starting in Simon Bolivar's mm -hmm. lifetime. I mean, he saw what was happening with the expansion of, of, of the United States from coast to coast and, and warned the hemisphere about it. But that is the biggest inspiration of, that Venezuela gives me is her people. And I say that because and, – and here's where I would say it comes to what can we do here in the States and, and, and bring it to communities of people. For me, I have taken – 15, 20 delegations to Venezuela since 2005 and have seen this arc of, you know, Chavez's lifetime right out, you know, close to the 2002 coup, to his death, to the Maduro government and, and these, this heinous, heinous, you know, sanctions, economic warfare placed on the country and our people. And now how that is shifting and, and coming out of that to a certain degree, but how it has also forced so many countries to unite outside of the sphere of the of the US and that's where Marco Rubio was now concerned that the dollar isn't going to be able to be used as warfare in future years maybe sooner rather than later but i would really really say please go to venezuela join a delegation go learn about this bolivarian process go visit the people and see what a beautiful country this is geographically culturally and and with the people. I guess what, I, what comes to mind is that, yes, the, there is declining U.S. hegemony in the, re, in the region, in Latin America. But, uh, you know, I, I, see, I see an empire in decline and I get worried because empires in decline tend to be more violent on their way out. So I'm, 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 I'm hopeful for what the future is, is going to bring, but also I'm, I'm, I'm nervous and, and more determined to continue the work and, this, you know, and just continue to, to push for the lifting of the sanctions, which seems very possible, but, but also like not, not, you know, just being very wary and, and on guard about, you know, what could, what could happen because, we, we, you know, we're all aware of how violent the U.S. empire is, how violent it has been, how it has supported coups, you know, coups left and right in, in, in Latin America and around the world. And, and yeah, how, how, you know, there were plans to assassinate Maduro several times. And so I think the hopeful times, but also very scary times. One of the things that I find extremely inspiring is, in, is the example that Chavez set in, in terms of showing that a revolution uh, is possible in Latin America, even in this day and age in the 21st century. Uh, I think that gives people hope. Uh, of course, it wasn't him by himself, but, uh, but he was, so to speak, the galvanizing factor in, to a large extent. And that is so important to have that, uh, that example as, as, as something that, and I think it's one of the reasons that there were so many, that there was this first pink tide, really, because that served as such a powerful example of what's, what is possible. And uh, hopefully that, you know, as, as it becomes better known, uh, you know, that can continue to serve as an example for, you know, the rest of the world. Um, and that's, that's, you know, it's just uh, such an important factor when you're trying to, um, you know, work for a better world that, to see that these kinds of things can be changed despite incredible odds. I mean, nobody would have believed that something like uh, the Bolivarian Revolution would have been possible you know, even a couple of years before Chavez was elected, uh, it was completely unimaginable. Even actually after he was elected, it wasn't really imaginable. Um, it was only really after uh, the coup against him was overturned that people really saw what was possible. 
Uh, that was, uh, for me, the, the main inflection point, uh, that that coup could be defeated. Uh, and uh, and that's, uh, that's just uh, something that, uh, that uh, yeah, it, 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 for, I mean, I think for so many people also in Venezuela, it was just such an eye-opening experience. And uh, hopefully that will continue to be the case. Yeah, I think um, something that Claudia, <laughs> just keep quoting Claudia, but you said a lot of good stuff. And um, you know, Vijay Prashad in, our, in Tricontinental has said this too, but um, you know, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world being, and, and, you know, the planet being flooded by ice caps, by melting ice caps, than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And I think that's something that the Bolivarian Revolution does um, to, for us in the United States is it shows us what's possible, even under these, like, imagine, unimaginably horrific conditions of the U.S. embargo and the sanctions and tens of thousands of people dying every year unnecessarily. Um, it shows, you know, when you look at the comunas, when you look at the missions, when you look at what the Bolivarian Revolution is and what it does for its people, even what they what the people do for themselves through the Bolivarian Revolution now, even under those constraints and, and before, you know, the crisis intensified in 2017, um, it really it shows us what's possible and, and helps us kind of revive our, our our imagination about what we can build here and also what we deserve. Um, I think, you know, there's been such a. a massive effort to like cry to erase our history because we do have radical history in the United States and we do have, you know, important ancestors to to look to, but most people have never heard of them. And I think something that's telling is that May Day is next week. And I worked for unions for a long time and I actually didn't really know until after I left unions that May Day was, you know, first of all, originally is is coming from history in Chicago in our own country and that we have Labor Day in September to separate us from the radical history of May Day and International Workers' Day. So you have something that's that basic, that the rest of the world celebrates May Day. And the, it, there are organizations in the United States who celebrate May Day, but it's not a national holiday. It's not celebrated even by unions in the same way, on the same level. Um, and so, you know, there's, we've, we've been really been like robbed of this history, robbed of our history and robbed of our ability to dream and imagine. Um, and, and that really impacts the position that we're in to build a future, the future that we deserve that, um, you know, protects the integrity and dignity of working people. Um, so I think, you know, you mentioned fissures, um, but we, and I, it's a, it's important. I think it can, looking at the Bolivarian revolution and, and Cuba also, you know, uh, others mentioned, but is so inspiring that it can be easy to be like, oh, it's, it's so amazing there, but it's not here. Right. But it's actually, we do have, you mentioned fissures and we actually do have seeds. So many of them in this room um, of, of what that could look like. And I think, um, the Bolivarian Revolution has a really important role for us to play, organizing our own revolution here in the United States to help us nurture those seeds. And when um, we recently participated in a conference at the University of Massachusetts, organized by a bunch of unions, um, and had a workshop on comunas, and it was the best attended workshop, was like of, of you know, like the entire day I heard, and there was a lot of enthusiasm of people working on different projects that, like looking at this people who'd never, maybe some people had heard of Venezuela, but Many didn't really know anything about the Bolivarian Revolution and even learning in like 40 something minutes what some of those examples, um, you know, of the example we can look to it really, I think, helps spark our imagination and kind of revive, um, yeah, revive our, our ability to dream, to build the future we deserve and the present we deserve. I'm always a little bit skeptical when people talk about the declining U.S. empire as if that might possibly give rise to something better because it also might give rise to something worse, as like Hector said. Because as we saw in you know multiple right-wing coups in uh, Latin America, but also attempts here in the United States, you know, you scratch a, there's a saying where it's, you scratch a liberal and a fascist bleeds. Oftentimes, you know, the class, our class enemies 
are in, uh, in political tendencies or alignments that may seem friendly to us at one point, but when it gets rough, they will turn on us on the left and they will try to crush us. And um, so I just want to put that out there because it takes a lot of struggle to, to, to get to that place. And, but we don't come to political engagement or the catalyst of a lot of people's political engagement doesn't necessarily just come from oppression, poverty, and, mi and misery. It comes from the promise of constructing a new world. I, that's how I came to it. You know, I, I could have just, if I was just, um, you know, mired in poverty, I wouldn't be where I was, you know, where I am today. It's because I found revolutions and movements that inspired me. I went to Venezuela, not at its height, not during Chavez, as much as I wanted to see the Bolivarian revolution in that, in that context. I went to it in a very hard place when a lot of the people were suffering and it was at the time, you know, that a lot of people were starving and not getting access to, you know, medical supplies and still aren't today, but it was difficult. A lot of the friends that I made there were a lot skinnier uh, at that time. Um, and it was, you know, but it, it's, that's not what I took away from the experience. What I took away from the experience is that they had weathered that storm. And I, and I was like, it, it, it blew my mind. It's like, it's almost, I don't want to, I don't have magical thinking, but it's like what inspired them to, you know, to wait out this, the siege on every facet of their life, to be so committed to that promise of constructing a new world. And that inspired me, you know, that's what I took away. It was, we went to an indigenous gathering in the south of Bolivar and it was, it was, it, it was, you know, the, the conditions were bad. I'm not going to lie. They were bad. But even the indigenous people were holding out, you know, hope even from other areas that this was a place that we were looking to. This is the new internationalist movement that we need to, you know, rally around. And so I think about that in terms of what it's going to take to, to build that alternative here in the States. Do we have that determination to wait out this kind of backlash that's inevitable? And the only way we can, we can build that is through solidarity. That's our best defense. Absolutely. And I think just listening to the wealth of knowledge and commentaries here at this roundtable, I think our listeners will appreciate just how inspirational this weekend was because it was full of this sort of discussion. And I know I'll come out of this feeling a lot more invigorated and inspired, particularly our indigenous brothers and sisters, you know, over 500 years of struggle, and they continue to resist and continue to also give us an example of what that resistance looks like. And then have also taught us that, you know, we should never give up hope because we will actually defeat our enemies. Thank you so much for joining us.